Today's episode is sponsored by Missing Link Studios. Missing Link is a social impact storytelling and analytics agency made up of human-centered, data-driven media makers who create compelling stories and content through podcasts, blogs, film, music, interactive web, research, and data journalism. Missing Link Studios works with businesses, community, and educational organizations, nonprofits, museums, and cultural institutions that want to spread public benefit through media. Through media production, data science, and design, Missing Link is your home base for hatching and launching new projects and services that share your good work and serve the world. Let Missing Link Studios tell your story. You can contact them at missinglink.studio. That's missinglink.studio. Now on with the show. Hey everybody, welcome to Experience by Design. I am your co-host and co-pilot Adam Gamwell here with Gary David. Super excited to bring you an episode today. We are talking with Ben Witter. He is the Chief Experience Officer at World Employee Experience Institute, which is an awesome name. And just came out with a great book that's called Employee Experience, How to Develop a Happy, Productive, and Supported Workforce for Exceptional Individual and Business Performance. We had a wide-ranging and fascinating conversation that covered everything from how to approach and spot difficulties and problems in the employee experience with how to fix that through management HR, through bringing just the human back into the story, and how to apply and add deeper psychological and behavioral tools that can make a true fundamental difference in human performance in the workplace. A lot of this is based around the spirit of co-creation and what does it mean to approach a problem with stakeholders as co-creators and people to find a solution with rather than someone to solve for. When he comes in for consulting opportunities and working with businesses to help find ways to improve the employee experience, he loves asking the question, what do we need to break here? Now, let's think about that as we move into the conversation. When you think about if you work in an organization or you, you know, work for a business, and you want to think about, I really wish this process was better or that process would be better. Or we didn't have to answer emails this way or that we could use Slack. It's just a great framing question to get into the minds and hearts of employees and what matters most to them. So without further ado, we're going to dive into the conversation and can't wait to share it with you. Here up is Ben Witter. How did you get to this point where even before employee experience was a thing, you were doing employee experience? What was that? What was that journey? Well, well, for me, I started off, um, I went on a, a little bit of an adventure after university and it took me to many different countries and many different jobs at different levels uh, and across you know places like France, Germany, Australia, Japan. So I, I saw firsthand that there was something seriously wrong with the way that we built organizations and workplaces and, and the experiences that we provided to our employees. Uh, so that kind of led to a, a kind of lifelong fascination with the world of work and how to fix some of these issues and challenges within um, the employee experience. So that's what I kind of de dedicated my career to. I uh, had a epiphany when I was traveling and I was like, where can I add my value within the business world? Because uh, I wasn't particularly salesy or product or, or commercial in, in the more traditional sense. But I did see the connection between people and profitability and all the good stuff that comes with great business. So that took me to HR, funnily enough. And then uh, that's where I got qualified and started to get some experiences. Um, and then you know, you, the eureka moment was seeing how you could change things in a positive way and the difference it makes to employees and the organizations that I was working for. It's it's been an interesting shift for me to watch because I'm originally from Detroit, uh, you know, being a very union town and very union oriented. And there was this 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 time in American history, at least, where unions were seen as, in many ways, uh, you know, responsible for the rising of the middle class, but, you know, and safe working conditions and things like healthcare and vacation, all of those very positive elements. And at, at, at a point in American history in the '70s and the '80s, there was a shift that took place, and where the idea of advocating for workers' rights somehow became uh, a stigmatizing activity for a lot of people. And mm. one of the things I find about employee experience is this 
it's, I wouldn't call it, I mean, I would say it's workers' rights, but in a different way, it's almost a more palatable conversation about workers' rights than we, than we had when we talk about like unionization and uh, collective bargaining. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've kind of lived those experiences working with unions in uh, public sector organizations in the UK. And when you start understanding that we have somewhat of a shared purpose and a shared interest in improving work conditions and workers' rights and the experiences that we deliver and co-create with employees. I think it, it sets up a different level of relationship with unions. And, you know, that, that's the way I approached it, working with unions back in the day, um, several years ago. And again, it was a different type of relationship. It was very uh, proactive. It was very positive. It was very, uh, there was a lot of mutual respect in the relationship. Because if they see me as a HR professional, you know, traditionally you would say, okay, HR is on the side of management. But if, if you're a more, say, progressive kind of HR professional, you realize that there's a major opportunity within that function to you know, balance the needs of both employers and employees and deliver great business outcomes right at the sweet spot within that. Yeah. One time I had a, back when I was an undergraduate, I was a psychology major and I had a industrial organizational psychology class. And I was also a sociology major with strong worker leanings. And I do recall one situation where I, I said to my professor, so management hires you to do projects. And he said, yeah. And I said, so you're going to do projects and come with outcomes that are favorable to management. And he just kind of looked at me and um, I, I can't recall his exact what he said. I want to say that he said, yes, that's right. But there was this, this element of, you know, HR and whose side is it on? And I don't know much about HR uh, at, at, you know, in terms of professional training and, and, and study. I did have to bone up on it when I was do, teaching a class on employee experiences past summer, mm. but it is, it does, it does feel like there's this tension around HR on, you know, who's it for? It's, you know, being, you know, the classic situation being stuck in between two parties, almost like, you know, a, a mediator or a counselor. Has that been your experience with HR? Oh, absolutely. When I arrived uh, and I started to get some experience in the function, it was very, very clear. So I went to big uh, pharmaceutical pharmaceutical organization first up and it had the traditional kind of shirt service model. So you had the HR business partners and then HR advisory service and all the different specialisms and centers of excellence. And actually, you know, that was, it was a great employer where I worked, but you could see even then in a great employer, there was a division amongst not just HR and the business, but HR and itself because it, it divided itself into so many different specialisms. And that holistic thinking and that connection just wasn't there. So the experience of it was you know, very fragmented and HR probably still didn't have the best reputation across um, the business. And that's been my experience throughout different job roles as well. Uh, there's something about that HR function which does get stuck in the middle and it's there as an easy corporate punch bag. So if there's something going wrong with the business or there's... Uh, disputes or things that are quite negative, then, well, let's just point at HR. <laughs> right. But, uh, I don't think that's always the best thing to do because I think it gives the community of employees and people this easy target to shift responsibility to. I, I don't tend to agree with that. I never quite knew what HR did. I mean, I knew they were there. And I knew that I had to, they, they sent me emails that, that required me to do things. And in the U S especially, you know, we get our insurance, our, our coverage through HR. And so I knew they did that, but quite, and quite literally, I mean, I work at a business school, but I really <laughs> never knew what HR did. I mean, what was their purpose other than processing my hiring and then sending me a letter once a year saying it's time to renew. And so I think that there's this interesting moment in reading your book, which I want to talk about, where HR is really having to undergo this radical transformation and figure out how it's going to redefine itself in the eyes of people in the organization. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful and, and absolutely necessary. I'm having lots of discussion with colleagues on some of the programs that we work on. And there is this, you know, there's this dawning realization that if they don't change now and quickly, there's not going to be many roles less for them within this you know, new type of experience economy. 
So they won't be caught in the middle anymore. They won't be caught anywhere because they haven't got the necessary skills or mindset to develop these experiences or, you know, be able to work with data and evidence or design thinking and you know, organizational psychology, all these deeper behavioral uh, economic type activities and things that they can now draw on as tools and resources to say, okay, we're going to do this because it makes a fundamental difference on business and human performance. Now, if they can't say that because they're focused on the law value stuff, the administration, which is all going to be pretty much automated in the next few years, right. then what value is left that they deliver to the business? There's, there's not much. Yeah. And you mentioned the experience economy. Did you, how did you get the name Mr. Employee Experience? Is that something someone gave to you or is that something that... <laughs> yes, the queen uh, gave it to me. The queen. <laughs> That's how that works. So the queen, so there was a ceremony in which you were knighted, sir, employee experience? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Uh, no, I know. I was, I became obsessed with experience back in around about 2014. So I was working as a director of organizational development at the University of Nottingham in China. But we were developing a research agenda across multinational organizations on the foundational elements of employee experience. So I was sharing and speaking a lot at conferences about employee experience. And in that part of the world and, and you know, many parts of the world, it wasn't on the agenda too much. So I was the one out there talking about employee experience. And it was, I remember the moment it was someone put it on social media after I spoke at a conference in Singapore, I think it was HRM Asia. Um, and then it kind of went crazy from there. I actually have been to the University of Nottingham, not in China, but oh, the other one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, twice. Actually, twice I've been there. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, it, of course, we only think of Robin Hood and all that, but it was, it was a interesting time being there and hanging out. But I think the China one sounds a little bit more exotic. Than yeah, the, yeah, absolutely. Nottingham one. Yeah, big campus and a 10,000 students. Uh, 1,000 staff members. Um, looks like a little slice of England in in uh, a tier two Chinese city, which is very interesting. Hmm. I think one of the one of the pieces that that um, I'm really interested in this conversation. So I'm I'm an anthropologist by by training, a cultural anthropologist, and so I also work in the experience space. But I I tend to come at it from this, as you mentioned, like kind of the design thinking and design experience design area. So more digital production of things, and I, I guess. You know, one thing I'm, I'm struck by in this idea of thinking about this University of Nottingham in China, as well as in the UK, and then, you know, what kind of differences do we see culturally in terms of what, you know, what is expected out of employee experience? I don't know if there's like one or two examples that come to mind that you might see that there's a difference of, of sort of how management or HR approaches the employee experience in, in China versus the UK. Is there anything that has, has kind of jumped out to you over the years? Oh, uh, this is huge because I, you know, I was massively interested in Chinese organizations and mm. particularly the ones that wanted to internationalize and how they were lining up their organization to, to best serve them in that situation. But also international organizations <clears throat> coming into China who, you know, they'd set up their consumer and market strategy, but sometimes the employee experience strategy was way behind. And so we've had some major failures from uh, UK and European organizations and US type organizations moving in and then getting kicked out of China quite quickly. Mm. And I think the, the biggest learning I took from living there for three years was that, you know, you have to localize. There's no question about that. I think if you don't localize quickly and from the outset of your business plan in China, then it's going to be very, very difficult. And that's the same thing when I talk about employee experience in Asia and China. Um, if you don't go there thinking about China as a completely different um situation and context to deal with and try and bring in Western management practices or Western ways of doing things, you know, often it's not going to work out well for you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's putting it mildly to say the least. I think you have, have to, you know, the first year I was in China, I just went completely open in terms of, I need to learn this. I need to understand more. Um, there's black and white, but I need to really start operating in the gray area. Um, to accelerate my learning and progress there. And we did that. So we did a lot of co-creation. And I think that's the, that's the big thing as well. I think if you go to any context around the world and go with that, that spirit of co-creation, then I think you can end up in a pretty good place uh, rather than saying, okay, what we do in San Francisco or London or Paris or wherever is going to be uh, suitable for China. Uh, that's completely getting off on the wrong foot, I would say. Do you find that that HR organizations today are are 
you know, much more like they, they sort of anticipate this idea of co-creation or is this something that, that you have really championed over the past few years to kind of get HR to wake up a little bit? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Know. I mean, employee experience, you can't talk about employee experience without talking about co-creation. Um, and I think HR as a profession, which is good, has latched onto, you know, the power of design thinking, which is a great, you know, it's a great um, approach and methodology to get things going within uh, the employee experience and to deliver b- better quality experiences. But I think it's one approach uh, out of many that are available to HR uh, folks and professionals. So I think for me, it's about opening up to, you know, different methods and ways and approaches and means to co-create in very different ways. So I think that, you know, there's been some high profile cases of uh, hackathons and breakathons and things that really um, spark to life some interest in the employee experience and co-creation. And I think that's really good in terms of uh, kicking off a new relationship with employees. I think there's nothing better than going to employees and saying, what do you need to break in this organization? What do we need to mm. uh, fix and solve um, that's getting in the way of high performance from your perspective, but also high performance from from you as a human being in life generally as well. And you go after those, I think employees respect you more and they value the thing that you're doing because it's not just been developed and concocted from some corporate HQ somewhere, <laughs> which is, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that's still happening quite a lot, I've got to be honest. And there's been some case studies in the recent past which I, I log in my bad experiences file. <laughs> Where it's that's very, a, very that's clear. A big file, right? That's oh, a big file. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But if you have experienced architects or people focused on the experience, a lot of these high profile scandals and cases where employees clearly haven't been consulted, let alone, you know, part of any co creation projects. You know, all these scandals could have been avoided to, for the most part, I would say. One of the things that uh, I often find is when I've talked to companies and I've not done it nearly as much as you, but I, I end up thinking, oh, I'm trying to save you from yourself because yeah. left your own devices, you really are going to probably screw this up. And we know you're going to screw it up because I'm here in the first place. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like, you know, couples, you know, don't go to marriage counseling and everything's fine. So by the time that a person like you probably walks in the door, uh, you know, it's, there's already probably a problem. I like the idea of an experienced architect and companies being proactive, getting in front of it before it, it becomes a problem. And this, this, you know, to try to help companies show that they actually care about people. And, yeah. and I think there's an interesting uh, statement there to be made culturally that companies have to show that they care about people because the assumption and often the demonstration is that they may not or they don't. Mm. Yeah, that constantly and consistently came up in the research uh, for the book in that those organizations that demonstrate real care and concern for their employees, they tend to do better generally. Um, you know, there's a lot more consideration and thought and intentionality in, in the experiences and the connection between them. And it's very, very obvious when you walk in and meet these companies and uh, you get a good feeling, which again is a, is a good aspect and element of employee experience. It's that feeling, those emotions, uh, those memories even that you create. Uh, but there are still people that, you know, they have been absolutely let down and destroyed by some of the companies they've worked for because there was a total lack of care and concern about their welfare, about what they're going through in life. And that leads to, you know, a very long lasting memory, which they can't wait to tell people about. <laughs> so exactly. kind of the opposite of advocacy. You, you mentioned the book and the book is entitled Employee Experience, which I love that title because it, you don't have to wonder what, what the book's about. <laughs> what's, what's the book about? It's about employee experience. But you know, I want to talk about the, the subtitle, which is develop a happy, productive and supported workforce for exceptional individual and business performance. And especially that last bit, because working at a business school, as, as you do, there often is this element of, well, sure, maybe I want to develop a happy and productive and supported workforce. But is it profitable? I mean, that, that in and of itself is often yeah. for many companies not enough. It has to be that other piece, which is for exceptional individual and business performance, this ROI question of, okay, so let's say we, we, where we become employee centric. Is it going to be profitable? And you want to say, well, number one, yes. But number two, should it matter? I mean, I know you're in the business to make money. I get it. But at the same time, do you want to have an, a, a miserable workforce? Hmm. 
Yeah, this is huge. So recently I was chairing the uh, UK Employee Experience Conference in London, and we had two days of just sharing and beautiful insights and studies and case studies and real tangible outcomes of employee experience approaches. And then I was packing up my books and then um, I just took a delivery for the next conference the next day. And I was in reception at the hotel and this guy walks past. He could see I was packing my case with books uh, to move on to the next conference. And he got very, very curious, you know, sharp looking guy in terms of business dress. And he walks over, he said, uh, yeah, what's that? But what what's that about? What's that book about? He went, said it's about uh, creating positive experiences for employees in work, and he said, "Why would I want to do that?" Right? <laughs> How, why would you want to do that? I mean, that maybe that should be like the, the you know the, the title of your next book. Why you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was just the way he laughed and walked off. And then I'm sure I was so amused by the situation. I just started laughing with him mm-hmm. uh, simply because you can't um, start to even think about changing those people until you've convinced a large body of the economy of, of the merits of this thinking. And I think studies, there's one famous one uh, about purpose from Harvard Business Review from the employee perspective. And they looked at, you know, five to 7% more profitability of companies that really embrace their purpose. But also you embrace your purpose by installing it into your everyday employee experience. I think that's a key part of it. But then you look at the attractiveness of mission-driven companies in terms of attracting top talent, and then the the power of a shared set of values, that clarity and coherence within the employee experience in terms of the future direction of the business and all of these great academic measures. So I've looked at this from all angles. everywhere in terms of innovation, profitability, customer satisfaction, and you know the, the, the arrows pointing up across all these major metrics. Now, if you couple this with research on employee engagement, which is, I think is shifting, because I think engagement is now increasingly being positioned as, as an outcome of experience, then we still have that great body of research on the power of engagement as a, as a metric as well. So I think employee experience in its truest sense, the, the results a business. It's about business and brand outcomes. But likewise, we've talked about bad experiences. And if you have people focused on the experience, they're saving you from scandal every single day because you haven't worked effectively with your employees. And and these days, because, you know, transparency and social sharing is are so high and employee activism is on the rise, I think this is going to be a big part of that employee experience role going forward. It's not just about what you create and the value you contribute through the employee experience. It's about all of the stuff that you prevent from happening in a negative way to your brand. Hmm. That, that, that's a fascinating point. This is something that, that um, I've heard colleagues, for example, a colleague that works at Facebook in the U.S. has talked about mm-hmm. is that, you know, when it comes to both employee experience as well as, you know, user experience in this case um, with a you know product or platform or service, um, employees kind of function kind of like customers in this level, right? Because they have access and capability of, you know, putting out a review on Yelp or on, on Facebook itself, right? To sort of share, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, the, the sort of social sharing capability that employees now have is that they, they, you know, often must be approached in these different ways, not only as, you know, as someone working for a wage or a salary, but then also someone that is kind of a customer of the organization themselves. And I think that's a really mm-hmm. interesting kind of shift that we've seen happen, um, you know, in the, in the past number of decades in that uh, it it does kind of does. I mean, I guess for you, too, does that kind of change the equation? Is this, is this something that we see HR firms kind of thinking more about, too, is that when we look at engagement, it's not just about the idea of what do we provide, but what do we prevent? I think it is a really compelling idea. Um, is there any kind of case studies that pop in your head about seeing this happen where it's like we 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 didn't think about this, but then we realized actually if we we did a good service by preventing something, you know, even though it may not be seen as something that we put out there, but it's something that we stopped from happening. Yeah, I think there was a great one, um, I think a couple of years ago from uh, Virgin Media, where they looked specifically about the candidate experience. So they realized mm-hmm. quite quickly that um, a lot of the candidates coming through were already subscribers. Uh, so it was a good, uh, an interesting case study in terms of if they had a negative experience as a candidate, they would maybe stop their subscriptions to towards the media service. So mm-hmm. I think they costed that up and it was costing them millions in terms of people going, having an interview with the company and then having a poor experience potentially and then, and then coming back home and then uh, 
unsubscribing from the the, the main service and the core business. So wow. I think if you look at it in those terms, I mean, the quantifiable outcomes are huge. Um, if you give people a poor experience, um, they are, you know, taking action with their feet and and they will leave. Um, uh, you know, even if, if they have an experience as a candidate, I think this is an, a really interesting thing. But then there's others beside that. Um, all manner of different organizations are looking at this now in terms of the power of employee experience to attract clients. So if you walk into an employee experience organization and they've got this beautiful workplace design, the team atmosphere, the energy is high, everyone's positive, supporting each other, seems like a fun, happy environment to work in, then that's going to rub off on your clients and they're going to bring you their business. Uh, likewise, if they walk in and it's you know chaos and people treating each other badly and, and various other things, they're going to take note and they're not going to provide that business to you. Uh, the case in the book was, I think it was in the 80% in terms of walking into an organization as a prospective client and then saying, okay, this is a wonderful experience just as a visitor. Now I'm going to opt to give you some of my money. Hmm. What One of the things I think about related to this larger conversation is how much of how an organization treats an employee is wrapped up in their assumptions about human behavior. I was, mm -hmm. I, I had a chance to do some research on medical transcription, for instance, and, and I was talking with the, the one of the managers of, of a company and, and many medical transcriptionists today are working in a distributed environment. So a lot of them are working from home, if not, you know, around the world. And I said, to what extent can your employees communicate with each other during the day uh, for the purposes of sharing information or sharing knowledge. And the person said, well, not at all. We don't want them to talk to one another because then they wouldn't do any work. And I, was kind of, <laughs> and I had to say, you know, it was like, okay, that makes no sense. Then I was also in another situation around a call center doing a call, you know, redesigning a call center training program. Mm. And I was talking with the workers and it would, it would, it would have made their lives a lot easier if they had the ability to take pictures of the products they were servicing and send it to the customers. And I said, well, why don't you just take a picture with your cell phone? Oh, we're not allowed to have our cell phones at our desks. Well, why not? Yeah. Because, uh, because the, the, the assumption is that we won't do any work. All we'll do is be on our phone. And so where management comes in terms of, or where management is coming from in terms of their assumptions about human behavior is the worker, this the slothful person that has to be uh, through carrot and stick motivated to do work and left to their own devices will do nothing versus is the person fundamentally a motivated person who's looking for meaning and we need to enable that through creating positive experiences. And I, I think in, it'd be interesting hearing your perspectives of how quickly can you tell which assumption an organization is coming from in terms of how they're engaging with their employees. Oh, we love this. We love this. Um, you know, I, I go and visit a lot of organizations talking about employee experience and you can get a sense of it as soon as you walk in the door. So you can start to understand um, how strong the hex is, so the holistic employee experience, um, within minutes, you know, walking around, having a look at what's massively important to the company, talking to a few colleagues here and there. You get a sense straight away in terms of how connected that organization really is and how much is just very nice marketing or, or kind of uh, some glossiness um, about the business. So I think that's massively important because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, no one stands up on a conference and, and talks about all the challenges and failures as a brand, but maybe they should do because, because <laughs> that's, you know, that's more authentic and closer to the truth. You may hear about one organization that's exceptional in employee experience, but none of the employees trust the employer. Uh, and they're very much on the verge of uh, chaos or some kind of uh, employee-led revolt, which has happened several times this year uh, for major contracts that have not been won because employees don't feel that the business is aligned to the values of the organization. So this is why I speak about truth in terms of aligning and unifying the organizational workforce. So it's that purpose, it's that mission, it's those values and that unleashes the potential in terms of employers can start trusting their, their employees and employees can start trusting the employer because we're all serving this, this truth. And it's either true or it's not, or it's, you know, sometimes it's a big fat lie. 
<laughs> well, you, you like, mentioned the big fat lie piece, right? And I, yeah. I'm just looking. I'm just looking at my phone right now, and I, I love talking about this in my taught the class on employee experience, which I'm going to use your book next year for. I didn't oh, use great. it this year because it wasn't now. Yeah, yeah. So I you already got a bunch of sales there. So congratulations. But the <laughs> idea that Amazon is one of the best places to work, and you kind of look at that and you go, hmm. okay. What's happening there? Because on the one hand, it's I'm looking at it right now. Amazon is a place. Google is the best place to work in the U.S. However, if you're talking to people on the fulfillment center where you look at what's going on in the news, it's quite a different picture. And so how do you then, you know, rationalize this element of is it something that the organization has bought into this holistic employee experience of the hacks, as you talk about in your book, is it truly holistic or is it bifurcated or is it just talk for branding? Again, uh, another beautiful conversation because a lot of this is in terms of winning in the marketplace. I've got to say, there's a lot of great PR and branding um, activities that go on around the employee experience because, you know, organizations have realized the potential of the, you know, many thousands of employees to effectively communicate the brand and what products and services are available and the experience of interacting with that brand. <clears throat> so I think from the marketing perspective, they're really clue, clue, starting to um, tap into that potential. But then you often get a disconnect between what's marketing on the outside and then what reality is like on the inside. So Amazon, case in point, they in the last year or so have implemented, you know, they've got a, a, a global employee experience team now to stand to bring together their senior leaders to talk about employee experience because inevitably they had to do that. They had to make some moves on the employee experience because of the things that you were mentioning, you know, congressional hearings and parliamentary inquiries into workplace conditions, you know, the wrong headlines in newspapers. So there was no question about that. And I think customer obsession has served them extremely well over the course of the journey so far. But if they didn't course correct and start to balance that out with the employee experience, then they would have headed towards something that maybe would be unpleasant and, you know, a sustained attack on their brand. So what they're doing now is trying to kind of correct the ship, I would say, and, you know, quickly arriving at number one in the world or number one workplace in the U.S. is probably evidence of that, that they're, they're starting to take this very, very seriously now. Because ultimately, they're going to automate a lot of jobs in those warehouses in the next few years. And it's going to be a different proposition for Amazon. Uh, and it, they'll be, I think, more easily talked about as a great workplace once they've um, fully automated or upskilled a lot of those uh, fulfillment centers. So they're a triple threat really now. And it all starts with human obsession. So they used to be obsessed about customers, but now they're becoming more obsessed about the employee experience and um, you know every, everything else. So it, it comes back to why not just be obsessed with humans? I think that's a better place to start from. Totally agree. And one of the things you said earlier that really is interesting to me, all this is interesting to me because I, I keep saying it's really interesting. So I guess it really is interesting. <laughs> but the idea that you know, empl employees save companies all the time. One, one of the classic examples I talk about in class when I talk about rules and processes <laughs> and practices is that workers can effectively shut a business down by only following their contract. Oh, yeah. That this yeah. idea of a work to rule kind of labor action when when employees are prevented from striking because of whatever reason, if they're essential work employees, for instance, like school teachers are can be deemed in the United States. Hmm. And so they'll just work to their contract. And in the process of working to their contract, it really does evidence the ways in which employees routinely and regularly can go out of their way to do good for the organization in ways that are not quantifiable or, or known necessarily. And they only become known when they actually follow the rules, follow the processes, do only what they're told. And I saw this with transcription, for instance. So one of the things that transcriptionists, it was assumed that medical transcriptionists, all they did was type what doctors say. Hmm. Well, if you ever listen to what a doctor says on a dictation file, which I have, you know that's not true. And so what the only time that, that transcriptionists would follow the instruction type it verbatim is when they were angry at the doctor and wanted to get back at <laughs> Because what would come out would be like this almost unintelligible gibberish that wasn't usable as a document. And it really demonstrated the value that transcription had. And so this idea of companies need to realize that all work is knowledge work. 
no matter how quote unquote menial it might be, and really appreciate and understand that when employees are engaged in a larger mission beyond just mm. transactional engagement, that they really are capable of doing much more than you even as an organization might have envisioned. And to facilitate that in the course of the, the regular workday and the organizational culture. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking as you were talking, the, the perfect uh, uh, title for this particular podcast would be The Employee Strikes Back. <laughs> I like that. That is good. Is that... Uh, yeah, that's not the title of the next book because the next book is um, why why you should do this. <laughs> um, that's the, but the employee strikes back. I think I think makes a lot of sense. And I all right now at my school in higher education, I know this is going on in the UK because mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends over in the UK in higher ed that there is this increasing emphasis on student experience. Yeah, and that we really have about the student experience. And one of the things I say at my my school is that if you want to improve the student experience, you have to start with staff and faculty experience. Oh, yeah, that, if you yeah, want to look absolutely. at patient, you got to look at healthcare provider experience. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about employees, it really is a broader concept than just, you know, the people working in the fulfillment center or the call center. It's anybody who's <clears> working <throat> with the organization of what are you doing to enhance their dedication, commitment, purpose at, through the work that they're doing. Yeah, I think that's the ultimate expression of what an organization is is there to do these days. So we talk about pr- uh, purpose over profit and the opportunity to create a lasting legacy in the spirit maybe of a Cadbury in the past or an organization that were more uh, kind of attuned to the societal and community impact. But I think there's been a big surge in in, in that in the last few years. So organizations really revisiting what it is to be an organization, how they can have a greater impact in society, create more sustainability. And all the indicators that this is going to continue uh, at scale across the economy now. So, you know, everyone's going to have a purpose very, very soon. So that's not what's going to be able to differentiate one business from the other. So I think there's going to be a lot of businesses, um, maybe not in business, um, if they're only focused on maybe a generic purpose. But I think it has to be a lived purpose. And I think the way to differentiate your purpose is through the employee experience. Now, the problem is most organizations don't do this um, very well. And I think you know, higher education is, is the topic you mentioned there. I think it's one of those areas that, that could do it a lot better. Because by and large, you've got people that want to educate and you know, develop the, the future generations coming through. So it's, it's a relatively straightforward connection to make within the holistic employee experience. But the problem is we like all these committees and we like to separate everything and we like to have local budgets and separate budgets and we like politics within organizations too much. Hmm. <laughs> I think that gets in the way. I don't, like, I don't like the committees. I don't like the committees. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think but a lot of You would think that people do. do because they want to be on it so much. Why is that, by the way? I mean, <clears> what is this like, you know, fetish with committees and meetings? Do you think it's just a way of making us feel like we're being productive? Yeah, I think so. I think it's that business thing. You know, you run around organizations and everyone's so busy and, and they delighted telling you that they're busy. But when you look at what they're actually doing, I think we could be making a bigger impact in other ways. And that could be working more collaboratively or trying to join up our thinking. But I'll give you a tangible example. We we did something different in uh, Nottingham. So I came as a director of OD and I was like, should I spend lots of money going out to get a commercial product to survey employee engagement or employee experience or whatever it may be. And I said, no. I said, why can't we collaborate on this with the business school and industry? So I brought in a global director of communications from Coca-Cola. I brought in one of our world-class faculty who's really a successful researcher. And she happened to be working on things that were around organizational behavior. So I said, why can't we co-create something that delivers value to all parties and we can do some some more good um, outside for other organizations. So we did that over six months and we developed our own metric and we used it over a period of years. And the outcomes were great for me as an OD director because I could develop the things that mattered to academics and administration staff. Uh, Industry colleague took a lot of insights in terms of building his practice and capabilities. 
And then we also got some research outcomes as well and publications as a result of that internal work and how we connected it externally. So it was covered by MIT Sloan and China Business Review as as, um, as uh, publications go. So I think that's what happens when you start to think holistically because that saved the university a, a, a ton of cash, uh, but it also delivered outcomes that would never have been delivered if you had that maybe traditional HR mentality of only looking at at HR and HR function and, and not looking at the resources and people you have around you. I want to work there because it sounds great. And one of the, I work, I work at a business school as well. And one of the things that often frustrates me is when we bring in consultants, nothing against these consultants and I do consulting work, I get it. Mm. But I'm like, you know, we have people here who do that. I never understood this. I never mm. understood this. <laughs> me either. I, I don't, I can't explain it. I just had a conversation recently and, and I said, you know, I told somebody, I'm like, you know, I do this for a living and teach it. Right. You know, it's, and it really does become demotivational because it's a fundamental failure to acknowledge the expertise and the, and the mission and the connectedness and the community. You talk about community a lot in your book, the community that people have for an organization. And, you know, I, Looking internally at your own expertise and ad- assets as a first step, mm. not as a never step, right? That And when you bring in outsiders, sometimes you need to, and a fresh perspective is really important. That can be beneficial. But other times, you really do need to recognize your own internal talent beyond just their job description or even with their job description and engage them in meaningful work that they would, that they, that they would be engaged with. I just, I just don't understand why organizations don't do this more. It's a different vibe and energy as well, because you're building something together. So I started off that work. Um, I connected with actually engaged for success at the time, which was the government commission movement into engagement. And I said, I'll, I'll run the first discovery workshop for you in China. So we did that with, um, I think we brought together about 100 staff. And we said, what are the most important things within your employee experience? And then we started to prioritize actions for the, the year ahead. And then at the same time, we developed all the major academic um, frameworks and reference points and um, measures within the, the engagement metric that we wanted to use to co-create with them. So it was a beautiful uh, piece of work and really enjoyable to be part of as well because we were doing it together and it was our own thing and it had our own um, kind of personality on it, which was good. And I think employees at the time respected that as well because you walk around campus and you're all starting to talk about the same thing. How can we develop the experience? I'm not interested in your engagement levels, to be honest. I've got to be, you know, I say that to most organizations up front because that engagement still is a management-centric endeavor. It's still thinking about how can we engage you to get the most productivity and profitability out of you. Whereas right. if we're starting from the position right. of how can I co-create with you to create a better experience for you and for us as a long-term sustainable business, that's a different conversation and people enjoy it more. So, you know, don't worry about getting buy-in because people are already part of the experience as it was. The way I the way I differentiate an engagement versus experience, because I had a hard time trying to figure out how to talk about different ones. Mm-hmm. And I kind of boiled it down to you can tell me, since you are Mr. Employee Experience and you wrote the book on it, you can tell me if this makes sense or not. Mm-hmm. But I, I differentiate between personnel development and personal development, where engagement is this HR or HR centric activity, where how can we get the greatest production activity out of the workers? And so we're going to do things <clears> in the workplace to facilitate that. Whereas personnel or employee experience is really, as you said, human centric or person centric. And sometimes, you know, it's training people up so that they can leave and get better opportunities. And that's a success. Whereas Hmm. in, you know, personnel development, it's, we got to keep them here so we can, you know, gain benefit from the, the investment we're putting into them. Yeah. That's, that's actually a really great description. Yeah. I, I absolutely go along with that. Because I think engagement is an outcome of experience. And, you know, you can see with all the debate from academics and management that they've been going around in circles um, on employee engagement for years um, because it's never found its rightful place as an outcome of something that we're doing together within the business. I think that's been the biggest problem. And then you have vendors and providers and consultants trying to frame it in ways that they can sell into businesses. That's been massively unhelpful. And a lot of money has been wasted when people realize that what they had within their context, within their organizations, was the magic ingredient from the get-go. 
They didn't need anyone else coming in and saying, here's a framework to use and we're going to try and force you down this path. Maybe it's technology implementation. Maybe it's a, a plan or a business strategy that people didn't buy into. But I think that's been the power of employee experience in that it's co-creation all the way and it starts with your employees, not external people. I want to ask Adam a question, actually, because I don't know if you knew this, Ben, but Adam's also studied workplaces mm-hmm. because he's for his PhD yeah, studied very quinoa farmers in Peru, right, Adam? Well, I think it's interesting because then you have a situation where people actually, you know, own. I don't know if they do or not. You could tell us, but this idea of, you know, the purpose is in that you're producing a thing which is tangible and real and you know is going to be consumed by people for their betterment. I mean, did you find the, if we call it the employee experience, be much different among the people you were studying than the bureaucratized organizational structures we're talking about here? I mean, th- this is this is super interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the case of farmers, we might think about that um, if I if I could use the, the M word uh, Marxist. Um, that like the, these farmers were, they, they both own the means of their, their own production. If we might think about that, meaning that, you know, they didn't work for a wage labor specifically, but they were able to, you know, whatever they sold, they directly made money on. Uh, now, like, of course the, the larger one wanted to scale up. A lot of farmers had aspirations and still do have aspirations to, you know, produce on a larger scale to, you know, put their, uh, their crops together with other farmers so they can sell on a larger, on a larger scale to reach larger markets, especially, you know, the U S and so, you know, when it when it began to scale up, of course, then the the organizational complexity skyrockets, right? It's not just a, in a community of people, which is also it's something you think about if you talk to your neighbors, like that's also its own, uh, you know, small organization that requires getting together and deciding on what block party to have, um, you know. But when it moves beyond that, then it, it is kind of getting in with with either nonprofits or for profit organizations that are helping for farmer organization, as well as um, you know interfacing with marketing agencies and uh, export import companies. So, you know, it gets global very quickly. And so um, it's interesting that that the farmer employee experience doesn't, you know, they don't see that, you know, they don't see too far up the chain as it were, you know, from, from um, a farm into, into a, mm-hmm. a global uh, market. However, uh, two things that, that strike me about this is that they often spoke about the market as this kind of thing. The market was the dictator where in this case, we might talk about the managers or, the, or you know, managerial C-suite is kind of the dictator in this case. Yet both in both contexts, the the employee may strike back and literally strikes are a very common thing, actually striking, you know, um, in Peru in terms mm-hmm. of saying, yeah, either we are, you know, not receiving a fair wage for our work um, or that we're not getting, you know, adequate resources from, from local government. And so it's, it's quite interesting that like, regardless of where the power locus might lie, the employee always has, uh, in this case, like some power, uh, to sort of leverage their own existence, right. To leverage the human as it were, right. Because they are the bodies that make the work happen. Right. You know, farming is not anywhere near automation in, in Latin America. And so, and even if it were to become more, so I don't think we we might not see a mega change right away anyway, but I think that's to me is what was really kind of struck me about this is that uh, the employee, I, I love the term, the employee can always strike back, you know, um, and like, regardless of how complex it gets, like, so it really does matter sort of what, uh, you know, you know, whether we're in like a multinational corporation or an enterprise company, or we're working on local farms, there isn't a huge difference there. So I think that's, I, I really take to heart, um, you know, Ben's larger point that like, we have to start with the human because that's really where it, at the end of the day, it comes back down to it. And for me anyway, like that's a really interesting reflection point, like regardless of how complex, how multinational, how big we get. It's, it's about the people. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I think we're just going to, I think the podcast will just be that. We'll just have Adam <laughs> with his, with his treatise on, on, on Marxism. And actually you, you said, you know, I won't say the M word, but you know, I did start thinking in terms of, you know, they own the means of production, they own their mm-hmm. labor. Right. I mean, yeah. it's this, it's this different kind of thing. And there's a whole other podcast we could do on this dehumanization of exchanging, you know, your labor value. Um, for, you know, the thing you're building. And I yeah. just was reading this really nice book called On the Clock about uh, this, this person's experiences working in an Amazon fulfillment center, a call center and McDonald's. And this this element of dehumanization that happens. And I think that part of what we're talking about here more generally is the rehumanization of work. Mm. And that, and that's And that's sometimes in spite of the technology where you can have technology to monitor people 
and to degrade and de-skill, you also have technology to enhance and empower. And it really does, we talked about the managers, you know, always to blame. It does come down in many ways to the management's perspective on what they want to measure, what they want to incentivize, what they want to appreciate, and how they do conceptualize what the, what the worker and the employee is in terms of what they're bringing to the table. And I even think the word manager is the wrong word, quite frankly. I think that we got to get rid of that word because it, it just creates this sense of I have to control activity rather than facilitate. Yeah. I mean, the, the beautiful point about all of this is, you know, so I, I've been labeled Mr. Employee Experience and that's my field. That's where I focus the last five years and much of my career before that. But going around looking at all these organizations and talking with them, working with them, coaching executives on this topic, you know, employee experience is not about employees at all. It's about human beings. And I think the sooner businesses realize that, uh, the better. Because that will change the way they do HR. That'll change the way they do workplace design. That'll change the, the focus of the leaders. Because I think, you know, leadership has gone through this transition of so many different things being thrown at them, say, well, we have to be this type of leader. We have to be that kind of leader. But actually all people are asking for is some kind of human-centered mm. leader. Now, that's within the gift of anyone to turn around and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you how you feel when you come to a performance review. I'm going to ask you for your ideas. I'm going to create a safe place for you to speak up and show your yourself and express yourself freely. These are all basic, basic things, but that's where employees are saying very clearly that they want more human-centered leadership. So I think lots of opportunities within this, because I remember the farm experience too in Australia. There's a, a farm I worked on picking mm. fruit, melons for wow. 12 hours. And I actually got into a dispute with the farmer because my fruit picking experience was not as good as it could be. <laughs> Wasn't a good one? <laughs> So I, I ended up storming off after a big argument with him, saying, you know, you can't treat people like this. And he basically said, he wow. uh, and I said, why can't you? Because we've got people like you coming here every single day. We've got no problems with supply of uh, willing mm. fruit pickers. So when you leave, we'll get another one. But, you know, as a business strategy, that's perhaps been the case as well for talent and um uh, you know, attracting and bringing in talent to corporate organizations. But in this economy, and because the talent market is so, uh, you know, so competitive these days, they can't afford to do that anymore. Just like that farmer, maybe, if he's got a crisis or two mm. to deal with. That's fascinating. Um, and, and, and like, yeah, but I think that's, that's why it's so interesting to see this, this kind of shift happening because we can't, the other side of it too, right? In, in this broadly human sense, we can't just treat employees like the, like this, this pool that like, oh, you, you hop out of the, the, the barrel, I'll get another fish kind of thing, you know? Um, and I, I wonder mm -hmm. too, like to come back to a previous point too, if that is a, uh, you know, in, in relation to the idea that, that the employees can strike back, right. They can now express their negative experience and like blast it across all, all manner of, of channels. But at the same time, it's funny too, because in a very simple level, this is a, on one level, right. Kind of rehumanizing or bringing back the human or making us realize that this is, this is all that this is anyway, right? Like we, we, we humans are the ones that make up the organization. There is no organization without the humans that, that make it happen. Um, and sort of valuing that on that level of like, you know, this is going to sound like Sunday school when we were kids. Like, you know, the golden the golden rule of treat is how you want to be treated kind of thing, you know. Um, it's interesting to see like sometimes how these like fundamental elementary school rules, primary school rules come back around, uh, you know, at the highest levels of, of corporations that we're talking about. Yeah. And why is that though? I mean, I think people get distracted by mm. new shiny things and all these kind of new gadgets and gizmos and technology when fundamentally we, we still want the same things. We want that, that human interaction. We want that sense of community and belonging. We want freedom within a framework uh, and the framework is at our organizations. So I think all these things are coming back in vogue and I think that's a great thing. And when you have corporate America talking about purpose over profit and how we treat stakeholders in society and community and uh, suppliers and vendors and whoever it may be. I think mm. that adds up to good business. Um, you know, high performance used to be about the numbers and profitability and, and all the rest of it. But if you're arriving at, at good numbers and good financials because you treat people in a really appalling way and you don't care about the consequences, then I think increasingly you're going to be held to account, not even by your own employees, if, if that's mm. the case. 
Well, the good news is you're going to be busy because there's a lot of work to do. And I, I follow you. <laughs> I, I follow you on LinkedIn, and I'm like, oh, look, Ben's talking to a, a large audience again. And so, what's 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 kind of next for you besides engaging with uh, skeptics in hotel lobbies while you're packing up books? Uh, so, well, I'd love to. I can that. imagine I that, that you're probably pretty good at it. I I, I have this the vision in my head of this gentleman sauntering by. And, and you engaging with them. So what's what's next for Ben? I know you have the World Employee Experience Institute uh, and you have the book and you're talking to people all over the place. Yeah, so we've got, uh, we got more business trips coming up to spread the word about employee experience um, early next year. So that'll, that'll just continue. Uh, really focused on the Holistic Employee Experience Practitioner Program, which is a three-month uh, development journey that we run for colleagues in we bring together people from global organizations and startups and sports teams and all manner of different organizations to to really develop the mindset of employee experience and the holistic employee experience in particular. So that's three months of content, uh, coaching and collaboration. So we're going to continue that of four intakes next year. And uh, we've developed a measurement for employee experience, the holistic employee experience now. So we're working with organizations to have a look at the Employee experience. It's not an engagement metric, by the way. I do. I do practice what I do. I would expect nothing less. Yeah. But it, but it's just a way to say, look, you've either got a strength, uh, a strong hex, or you've got a stress hex. And if you've got a stress hex, then we need to co-create a lot more and do some things that are positive for the the organization. If you've got a strong hex, then great, all power to you. Let's crack on and make it even stronger, so you can perform well in in your endeavors. So that's, that's been a really great thing we've developed over the last, say, three months, four months. Um, and we're deploying that in different organizations and, and with clients. And then the, the big announcement, I suppose, which I'll, shall I reveal? Ooh, wow. I don't know. This is a big, uh, a big, uh, big event for us. So we appreciate it. I am, I, I'm used, I am using experience. your book next year too. So, I mean, that, that should count for something. Okay, so world exclusive for you. Then. So I've just signed on the dotted line for a second book. Hey, awesome. so there will be a sequel. Event. Wow, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah. So that means I've got to get writing in the new year, which is <laughs> let the hard work that's yeah, right. I, think, I think, you know, it, it obviously is needed. And Adam mentioned Sunday school, and you are, you know, what's the word? Evangelizing. You are spreading the gospel. You are out there making converts. You're talking in plurals of we. So apparently you have, are there 12 people in your organization? That would make sense if we were talking. Well, we've got partners um, all over the place and hex practitioners now are coming through um, and we'll start to see more hex practitioners in organizations all over the place. We've got lots in coming through in the U.S. as well. So that's the, that's the way we want to do it. We want to kind of um, take this to the world together. And that's what we say. We're not, our institute is different in that, you know, we're not going to be checking up on you and treating you like a kid saying, okay, we're going to charge you recurring fees to be associated with us and all that kind of stuff. We're saying once you've been through our, our program, that's part of the welcome experience and we're connected for life really. So we're going to support each other. And um, yeah, actually take this movement to the world. I think that's a much better way to mm. do it. Um, because there's so much work to do um, and there's so many organizations and, and minds that need to change on this matter that it's going to be a big job for all of us to get involved mm -hmm. with. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to make the big announcement and to delve into this. And I, I'll speak for Adam because I'm speaking right now for Adam. <laughs> sure, Adam, can thanks. I speak for you? <laughs> Don't you love when people yeah, say yeah. that? Adam, can you yeah, I'll, I'll speak, I'll well, speak for everybody so much easier, because yeah. as a, having, having a PhD, it allows me to do that. And, you know, I think that I, I you know, it's, it's my podcast right now because I, I have the microphone. So I think I can, I can, I can speak for everybody in saying that I think it's, it's laudable work. It's important work. It's needed work, both fortunately needed that you're there doing it, but unfortunately needed that we have to convince people that, you know what, one of the real reasons for treating people better is because it's, it's good to treat people better. But at the end of the day, however we get them to that point of treating employees better, I think is as how we got to get there and you're well on your way and have been doing that. So we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to in, in the midst of this new book venture, which it will be entitled the employee mm. strikes back. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you've already tried. We yes. I have, I was typing as we were talking. Yeah. I got the URL. I think we have to speak to George yeah. Lucas and Disney about that one though. I ha I'll be happy to sell you the URL. So I just bought all the domains. For <laughs> <that>. <laughs> 
All right, that was our conversation with Ben Witter. You can check his website out at worldeinstitute.com. That again is worldeinstitute.com and his awesome new book, Employee Experience, Develop a Happy, Productive, and Supportive Workforce for Exceptional Individual and Business Performance. And we're super stoked about his new book, hopefully titled The Employee Strikes Back. For Experience by Design, this is Adam Gamble. If you like the show, we're brand new on the block, so please share it with a friend. Let them know. Uh, talked about it with your colleagues at work at the water cooler wherever you hang out maybe on your slack channel let people know about the show it's one of the best compliments you can give us as well as you can reach out to us and let us know what it is that you'd like to hear you can find us at experiencexdesign.com once again this is adam gamble thanks for listening and we will see you next time ciao